Hey, my name's Matt Kennedy, and this is the Steadfast Podcast. This podcast exists to use Bible study and theological teaching to encourage you to be steadfast in your faith. Thank you for taking time out of your day to check out the Steadfast Podcast. I hope today's episode is an encouragement to you. So far in Luke chapter 6, we've seen some conflict on the Sabbath. We've seen Jesus pray and Jesus call his apostles. Then after this, we're going to see Jesus deliver a powerful sermon. One so powerful and so rich, it will take us at least a couple weeks to work all the way through. So here we go, starting in verse 17. Quote, And he came down with them and stood on a level place, with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. All those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. End quote. The verses I just read really set the setting of the sermon. Now, I am going to break from common thought here, so you can disregard what I'm about to say. If you like, I won't be too awfully terribly offended, just maybe a little bit, all right? So, many people consider these verses that we're about to read to be Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, which you can find in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. But I don't think that's right. Yes, much of the content is the same. Not all the content, but much of it is the same. I don't think that means it's the exact same event from a different perspective. Let me explain. In verse 12, where we were last week, it said that Jesus was on a mountain. But did you notice how verse 17 starts? It says, quote, And he came down with them and stood on a level place. End quote. Jesus was on a mountain, and then he came down from the mountain with his disciples, and now newly named apostles. But in contrast to this, Matthew sets up the sermon in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, quote, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, end quote. So in Luke's account, he is coming down from the mountain, and in Matthew, he is going up on the mountain. So it doesn't seem to be the same location, doesn't seem to be the same event. But hey, what about the similar content? I don't think it's a stretch to conclude that Jesus is saying similar things on different occasions. I think we're talking about different events here, but they very well could be the same one. Either way, what we see here, a large group of people, they're gathering to see Jesus. While I can't pinpoint exactly where Jesus is here in this passage, I know two of the places mentioned, Sidon and Jerusalem, they're around 124 miles or 199 kilometers from one another. So no matter where they are, you've got people who have traveled a long, long ways without planes, trains, and automobiles. So I also have to appreciate the diversity that would have made up this crowd. You see, Jerusalem, Judea, they are very Jewish areas. Tyre and Sidon, on the other hand, are very Gentile areas. So Jesus had everyone intrigued. He had piqued the interest of folks from multiple walks of life. And there's another element of diversity for us to look at. Look at the sentence structure here. Quote, 
a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, end quote. That first and is really key. On one hand, we have this great crowd of disciples, but then in distinction from them, we have a great multitude of other people. In other words, what we have is we have believers that are there and people who are likely unbelievers. They wanted to hear Jesus. They wanted to be healed by Jesus. They wanted to be saved from demonic forces. Verse 19 is so intriguing. Quote, And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. End quote. Power came out from him. What a wild phrase that is. While everyone may have not have known what to make of Jesus, they knew that he was not some ordinary guy. They knew that they could get help there. Whether there was a demonic influence in their life or a sickness or a disease, or they just wanted to hear what all the buzz is about. They did not have all the details, but they were coming from all over the place because they wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to get in close. I drew this distinction between the crowd and the multitude because of how verse 20 will start. See, verse 20 is going to tell us that Jesus has a clear primary audience. There is a group of people that he is primarily speaking to. But then there is a secondary audience that is going to be listening into the conversation. That is so important for us to understand. Jesus has a clear primary audience, yet no doubt he fully understands there is a secondary audience listening in. When we interpret passages of scripture, it is important for us to keep in mind not just who is speaking and what they're saying, but who they are speaking to, who their primary audience is is. Okay? Verse 20, we'll start with these words, quote, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, end quote. So his primary audience, the people he is most focused on in this passage, in the sermon we are about to read, he is focused on his disciples. And this is what is going to be true of them. It can be true of the multitude, the secondary audience one day, but primarily The people who Jesus has in his sights are his disciples. So, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are lumped into that category. So, here is what we are going to do. I'm going to read through this section of blessings and woes that Jesus is going to start his sermon with. Then afterwards, I will pair the blessing with its matching woe, and we'll work through them together pair by pair. Here we go. Verse 20, quote, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. End quote. All right, so we are going to break this down in three R's. Are you ready? Alliteration at its best. Riches, righteousness, and reputation. Here we go. Starting with 
riches. Verses 20 and 24, quote, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. End quote. One last word on this audience thing. Okay, so it is above and beyond important for us to remember and understand that Jesus is speaking to his disciples here. If we don't get that, we can come away with some wonky and some funky conclusions, right? If you remove the setting and remove the audience from verse 20 and just settle on, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God, you could come up with this notion. It's a false notion, but you could come up with it. That poverty is a means to salvation. Of course, that is not what Jesus is saying here. He is not saying you are saved through your financial standing or lack thereof. So what is he saying? Well, Jesus actually speaks quite a bit about the dangers of riches. For example, Matthew 19, 23 and 24, quote, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. End quote. In way of full transparency, I have never personally tried to get a camel through the eye of a needle. I do not think the camel would appreciate that very much. But it doesn't sound fun, and it doesn't sound, well, possible. And that's the same reaction Jesus' audience had in Matthew 19, verses 25 and 26, quote, When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. End quote. So it is possible. Now, don't go trying to shove a camel through the eye of a needle. He may not appreciate that. But it is possible for the rich, the wealthy, to be saved. A key to remember is what spurred this interaction, this conversation. Just before this moment, the rich young ruler, he comes up to Jesus and he asks Jesus, How can I be saved? How can I gain eternal life? And the conversation really hits its crescendo when Jesus challenges the young man to sell all he has, give the profit to the poor, and come and follow him. But the young fella couldn't do it. He chose his stuff over Jesus. He chose the created things over the Creator. Ultimately, he missed out on the greatest treasure because he couldn't let go of far lesser things. That is getting at the point we find here. Woe to this rich young ruler, for he has rejected the Creator for the sake of the created. Contextually, we see poverty as not the joy. It is who we cling to that is the joy. When you strip everything else away and there is only Jesus left, we will have all that we need for life and to be filled with his joy. One problem that comes with riches is a temptation that they bring, a factory, a manufacturing plant worth of idols along with them that we can look to attach our greatest love, our comforts, our securities, our identities to. They can get in the way of the greater joy that is offered to us through only Jesus Christ. In the depths of our comfort and security, one could think, why do I need God? I'm good. Look at what I got. Yet no matter how vast the riches are, are. They cannot provide, they cannot fill what only God can. Jesus wants his followers to clearly know that even if they live in poverty for their whole life, that he will be enough to sustain him, that he is enough, regardless of what we have or what we don't have in this life. Let Jesus be 
enough. That's riches. Let's now go to righteousness, our second R word. Verses 21 and 25, quote, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. End quote. This combination of blessings and woes are perhaps the most tricky to interpret. Is Jesus calling his followers to not just be poor, but the kind of poor that cultivates hunger, the type that keeps one from laughter, perhaps? And surely an encouragement in times of suffering is appropriate here, right? To be hungry and weeping is to be a place of desperation to say, there will be a day where you will be satisfied, where you will laugh, that the sadness will fade and give room to the joy that comes in the morning. Surely that interpretation would help us be able to understand the previous point all the more that Jesus is enough, that though we may hunger, that though we may weep, that Jesus is enough. But I I think there's another interpretation that is also valid here. Now, I've already told you, my cards are already on the table, that I believe this is a separate sermon from the Sermon on the Mount, located in Matthew 5 through 7. I also believe that Jesus is totally consistent with his teachings. What he taught in one place at one time, he surely taught over and over again through his ministry. In the Sermon on the Mount, when it comes to the blessing of hunger, Jesus says this, quote, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So while Jesus could have been talking about physical hunger here in Luke 6, I do think it's valid to perhaps take this and have it coincide with the Sermon on the Mount. And that is a different kind of hunger. To hunger for righteousness, I mean. To weep at the lack of righteousness in the world. I doubt seriously that I have to convince any of you that are listening to this that there is great unrighteousness in our world, that there is great darkness and pain and suffering, and that it is all so overwhelming. I mean, did you know that there are more people who currently live in slavery today than at any other point in history? The number is around 50 million people. That number is staggering, and it is hard, I mean, at least hard for me to wrap my mind around it. So maybe to help you understand that number a little bit more, there is a a website called slavevoyages.org, and it has statistics on the transatlantic slave trade. The transatlantic slave trade is one of the most horrific things in the history of mankind, for sure. From 1501 until 1875, there were a little over 12.5 million slaves sold. That includes slaves brought to the United States, to parts of Europe, and even down in South America. At this moment in time, where we sit, as I'm recording this in July of 2023, there are four times as many slaves in slavery today than there were sold in that 374-year span. Is that not mind-boggling to think about that there are four times today in this moment than all of the transatlantic slave trade? That means that there are 50 million or around 50 million people who are made in the image of God, 
who have inherent value and dignity and worth, who are now stuck in the bondage of slavery. Some of those are are slavery in the sense of labor, some forced marriages. Guys, this ought not be so. When we hear things like this, there should be something in us that says, hey, that's not right. That's not the way it's meant to be. And it's not. It's not the way it's meant to be. The way it was meant to be was before the fall, where there was perfect harmony in creation, where there was peace and tranquility and love abounding. That is surely the way that it will be after Christ makes all things new again. But in our present, though it ought not be that way, it is. And we could also talk of the horrors of abuse and wars and corporate greed and bullying and government mishandling and who knows how many things. On and on and on the list could go or we could describe evil in the world that could make us say, hey, it shouldn't be like that. It ought not be so. Yet it is. Things that make us hunger for a different way. For those of us who are disciples of Jesus Christ, we have a picture of what righteousness is. Jesus has given us that. So whenever something doesn't meet that standard, doesn't fit in that picture, there's got to be something in us that says this ought not be so. And in circumstances where we see people hurt, image bearers of God who are treated as less than that, that this ought not be so must get louder and louder, and the hunger we have for righteousness in our world must grow stronger, and surely the tears of weeping do as well. Let us hunger for the righteousness of Christ to permeate our world. Let us weep for the unrighteousness and the brokenness that it causes. Let it help us move forward with expectation to the day he makes all things new. And he is faithful and will surely do it. Now let's move to our last R, and that's reputation. It's going to be in verses 22, 23, and 26. Quote, Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. End quote. This is an interesting dichotomy that Jesus sets up, is it not? I mean, blessed are you when you're hated, when you're excluded, when you're reviled on account of Jesus, but woe to you if everyone speaks well of you. Notice how he mentions the prophets. The true prophets were ridiculed and the false prophets were celebrated. How do we think that might be? Now, it's a longer passage, so it will have to be your homework this week. Uh, But check out Jeremiah 23. Start in verse 9. It's going to be totally worth your time. In that passage, we have this message from the Lord that is talking about the distinction between prophets and false prophets. At that point of the biblical narrative, Babylon is coming. The judgment of God on his people will be carried out with Babylonian hands. God has sent prophet after prophet, generation after generation, calling his people to repent of their sins, to turn back to God, but they refused. When the prophets called people to come back to the Lord, they were hated and rebuked. But then other prophets started popping up, or at least people who called themselves prophets. Jeremiah 23 tells us that they were loved because they filled the people with vain hopes. They're like, everything is fine. The sky is not falling. Judgment's not coming. Don't worry about it. You're doing great. Keep it up. God loves what you're doing. When in reality, God hated what they were doing because what they were doing was steeped in idolatry and selfishness and sin. It was steeped in brokenness and greed and corruption. 
That call to hunger for righteousness that we just spoke of, it flows into this section too. When we are witnesses to Christ, and as the Great Commission commands to teach all the things Jesus had commanded us, we will be reviled. We believe stuff the world doesn't like. When we take righteousness and morality out of our faith and tell people God is always cool with what you're doing, people will love that. They want Jesus, but they don't want to follow Him. You see, the gospel tells us that God loves you as the sinner that you are. It was in your sinful state that God proved His own love for you by Jesus dying in your place. Yet God also loves you too much for you to stay there. He knows He is your ultimate good and joy. He knows how He has designed life to flourish, and He wants to get you there. Of course, He's not going to be happy to leave you in your sinful state as you pursue brokenness and self-destruction. That would be crazy. That would not be loving. But because His love is so great, not only did He save you as the sinner you are, but He wants to work in you to make you more like Jesus. He knows He's your ultimate good. He wants you to follow Him. He wants you to reject the ways that you are going and to follow after His ways. When we are honest about the objectivity of right and wrong, we will be reviled. You can see that so clearly in the world. It is worth noting here that Jesus says, on account of the Son of Man, I've seen a lot of folks who have been jerks and cruel and just mean about what they believe. And when that's not received well, then they think they're doing this thing right. That's not what Jesus is saying. The message Jesus has given us is offensive. I know it is. It declares that every man, woman, and child is dead in their trespasses and sin, that they failed, that they've come up short. Yet we are called to deliver that message in love, not in a way to push people down, but in a way to lift them up to a better way. But if we have delivered that message, if we have loved our neighbor as ourself and proclaimed to them the story of Jesus, and that is rejected and reviled and we are excluded and scorned because of it, then Jesus tells us to rejoice, to leap for joy. And he says, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. You see, Jesus calls us to be the most loving people in this world. He told his disciples on one occasion that the world will know that he was sent from the Father based on the way his disciples love. We are meant to be the most loving. But we're also meant to be the most honest about what the truth is. You know, when Jesus comes on the scene in John, it tells us in John chapter 1, it says that he was full of grace and truth. And let that be something that marks us as well, full of grace and full of truth. Let us be honest, but know that when we are honest, no matter how gracious that we are, people won't like it because what we have is a message that is contrary to the world and what they believe. One last point that I would like to make for us here is that no matter what we're looking at, with riches or lack thereof, righteousness or the absence of such in the world, or the reputation that we have and how we are treated by others, that no matter what we experience, no matter what burdens we carry, no matter what we go through in this life, that Jesus is worth it. Thanks for listening to the Steadfast Podcast. I want to remind you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Paul wrote this, quote, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, end quote. So in light of biblical truth, let us be steadfast, immovable. Let us remember that through Jesus, not one labor is in vain, not one trial is in vain, not one effort in all of our lives is in vain. Because he gives purpose, and that purpose rings through eternity.
that's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, if you've got questions you would like answered, you can email me at matt at steadfastpodcast.com.